This past week marks the 60th anniversary of the announcement of the Birmingham Agreement, which served to desegregate scores, restaurants, schools, and ended the incarceration of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for leading protests against unconstitutional bans on race mixing in Birmingham in 1963. Tomorrow, a new book will be released, the first major biography of King in over a generation. It's called King, A Life. My next guest is the author. Jonathan Eig is a celebrated author. He's the best-selling author of Ali, A Life, great book, winner of the 2018 Penn American Literary Award. His first book, Luckiest Man, The Life and Death of Lou Gehrig, won the Casey Award, another great book. Jonathan lives here in Chicago with his family. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me on this Mother's Day. Oh, thanks, Karen. It's always good to talk to you. Congratulations. What an undertaking. And, and, you know, you've written books about Al Capone called Get Capone, another great book, and about Jackie Robinson. And as I said before, Lou Gehrig, what, is there a common trait uh, among the people <laughs> about whom you have chosen to write? Or is it just like someone interests you and, and you grab, grab onto it? Yeah, what does Al Capone have to do with Martin Luther King Jr., right? <laughs> right. But there is a, well, they both spent time in jail, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, but the, I think the thread is rebellion. I'm really drawn to characters that, that rebel, that stand out from the norm and society, and, and you know, for, usually for good, but not always, um, try to change um, the, the, the law or the, or the strictures of society. And that, I, I think all of them, yeah, all of them have that common thread. This this book has original interviews and new sources, including thousands of FBI documents that were released. And, you know, I, this is a big question because your book is a big book and it was a big undertaking. But can you tell us what you think you've captured about Martin Luther King that may be different than other books that were written about him? The first thing is that I wanted to restore some of his humanity and remind people that he was a radical. Um, you know, we've softened his image so much over the years, especially since we created the national holiday. We teach kids about I Have a Dream, but we don't teach them about uh, about his, his what he said in the first half of that speech at the March on Washington in 1963 when he said that he called for reparations. He called, uh, you know, America a vastly inequality, a, a nation of vast inequality. He uh, demanded reparations and um, called out police brutality. So we, we forget that, that he was pushing America out, out of its comfort zone. And that in the last years of his life, he became terribly unpopular and actually suffered as a result. He was hospitalized for anxiety. Uh, some of his friends called it depression. He had the FBI breathing down his neck all over him, trying to destroy his marriage and wreck his movement. So I wanted to write a book that reminded people that he was a real man and not just a monument and a national holiday. And that kind of leads me to my next question is, you know, everyone has his flaws. And and as you said, one of the things that I didn't know that he did suffer from depression, and I I believe he had a suicide attempt when he was young. And I I never heard or I I never knew any of those facts. Uh, And, you know, although his uh, extramarital affairs have been rumored, I I think you you cover them and you talk about them. And was was it difficult for you to cover these flaws and and to actually write about them? Did you feel that you had to be sensitive to it? Or did you think that you had to be fair and open to give everybody the real view? I think if you're going to write a book and expect people to trust you as an author, you have to be honest, and that includes dealing with the flaws in in heroic characters. And I think Martin Luther King is a great enough hero and an important enough figure that we can handle a little bit of the truth when it comes to his weaknesses. 
So I approached it sensitively and respectfully, but I came out of the book, I came out of my six years of research on this book, um, admiring him more than when I went into it. I believe that he is one of the greatest Americans we've ever produced. I think we should find a space for him on Mount Rushmore, and um, and I can handle the fact that he wasn't perfect. He talked about it all the time, and, and yes, he, you know, he attempted suicide twice as a teenager, um, and he, he was never faithful um, to, to any women, as far <laughs> as I can tell, in his entire life. Um, so that's okay, because he still had the courage to put his life on the line for trying to make this a better country. He was deeply religious, uh, and 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 that was that that, that kind of motivated him. How, how? Tell me how his religion helped him with all these social issues that he seemed like he was ahead of his time about. I mean, all of the things that you were talking about—reparations, police brutality, and all of those things—are are still still in the news and still uh, leading the headlines here. So, how did the religion mix in with that? If you can simplify it for our listeners. Yeah, he was Mike King for the first 20 years of his life, and he was um, raised in a, in a home where his father um, was a Baptist preacher. His, his maternal grandfather was also a Baptist preacher. So he learned the Bible before he learned to read, and that, there's just no escaping the fact that everything he did was rooted in his beliefs that we are meant to try to live up to the image of God and that we are meant to follow the, the words of Jesus Christ. Um, he, he, he lived with that every day, and that doesn't mean he was perfect, but, he, but he, he was striving for that. And time and time again, when he could have backed down, when he could have compromised, when he could have, you know, let them, someone else lead the movement or, you know, take a, take a job as a university professor, which was his original goal before he was thrust unexpectedly into this leadership position, he refused. He, he felt like he had to keep fighting because this is what the Bible commanded us. It wasn't enough just to fight for integration in the South. He had to come to Chicago and push for integration of housing and schools here because equality is equality. It doesn't matter whether you're in Birmingham or Chicago. And these were his true beliefs. That's why he had to stand up against the Vietnam War, even though it cost him dearly. And and to me, um, that's a sign of a true believer, a, a rare kind of faith where you're really putting it in action every day. His intelligence, um, you know, he had his Ph.D., his, his doctorate, and his writings were beautiful. Um, do you know, did he write his own speeches and, you know, the letter from the Birmingham jail, which is a beautiful, beautiful letter? Is that his writing, all of that, Jonathan, or do you think he had some help with that? Oh, he had a lot of help. And King was a great writer, obviously one of the greatest orators in American history. But he was also a compulsive plagiarist, and he he relied heavily on friends to do um, writing for him. He often had friends writing sections, whole chapters of his books. Um, he had advisors writing whole speeches for him, and then he would look them over, deliver them, and improvise upon them. But one of the things he learned um, as, a, as a young Baptist preacher is the great art of improvisation, taking other people's sermons and making them your own. So even the letter from Birmingham Jail, which is probably his most famous uh, piece of writing, and he did, in fact, produce it you know, while in jail, writing on newspaper scraps and sandwich wrappers. Even that has some plagiarism in it, because he remembered things that he had read and sermons that he'd heard, um, books that, he, that he'd read even in college, and he'd incorporated those things into his writings, um, almost, you know, without even thinking about it. It just came naturally to him. 
Interesting. When we come back from our break, uh, Jonathan, I want to talk to you about the documents that were released from the government and what you gleaned from those documents and whether there are additional documents that have not yet been released. We'll hear with Jonathan Eig, who is the author of a new book that you all have to go out and buy, and it is called... Uh, it's I'm just looking at Ali. It's called King A Life. It's available tomorrow and on Amazon. And I'm going to also tell everybody tomorrow if you want to meet Jonathan Eig and and hear him talk about this, he's going to be uh, tomorrow at 7 p.m. He's going to be at the Bright Star Church uh, uh, at 7 p.m. and that's at 735 East 44th Street. If you want to uh, email me, I can send you all the information on that. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to WGN. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. We're here with Jonathan I, the author of a new book that's coming out tomorrow, King, A Life. It's an amazing uh, biography, the first one in decades. Uh, was that his last speech, Jonathan? Yes, that was um, given in in um, Memphis the night before his assassination to the um, in a rally for the striking sanitation workers. Is that just hauntingly prophetic, I, or is that just am I just kind of <laughs> it's just so sad to hear that? You know, it's terribly sad, and really for the last month, few months of his life, King was sounding like that a lot. He really seemed to be becoming um, morbid in his beliefs about the future. He was becoming more full of doubt um and you know he was he was losing popularity losing influence and wasn't sure where to go next he was he was mounting one last push really to try to convince america to to believe in what he'd been preaching all these years and he was trying to get together a um, a poor people's campaign he called it where people would basically occupy washington dc um but it wasn't even that wasn't going well he was having a hard time recruiting for it so some of his friends really felt like he might have been suicidal, but of course, you know. Um, oh, interesting. We we only we, we may only feel that way, or they may have only felt that way because he because he did in fact die the next day after that speech. So it's you know it's hard to it's hard to know um, how our feelings how their feelings about that were affected. Yeah, very interesting. You looked at a number of many many pages of documents that the government had had kept and now had been released. I know you can't really go into like the whole the, what you glean from them, but like what was the gist of what you found that surprised you about the government documents? Well, over the last few years, um, uh, under an order from President Trump, um, thousands of new FBI documents were released. Uh, it was kind of an accident. They were supposed to be releasing documents concerning the uh, the um, assassination of. President Kennedy, and um, by Trump's order, I think without intending to do so, he also released the documents related to the investigation of, of King 
And um, what it really showed is that the FBI surveillance of King was much heavier than we ever knew, that um, the surveillance and the, the attempts to really undermine the entire civil rights movement were much um, greater and more um, dastardly than we knew, and that um, LBJ was really complicit. It wasn't just J. Edgar Hoover. LBJ was actually encouraging this behavior. We often think that, you know, um, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI were were rogues, but that was not the case at all. Many members of Congress knew about it. Um, many members of the media knew about it, and nobody even tried to stop it. What was LBJ's motivation in wanting to bring Dr. King down? Well, LBJ was, a, as we all know, was a was a political beast and just loved having information on not just his rivals, but his allies as well, so that he could get what he wanted in negotiations. And I think part of it began with that sense. Part of it was that he seemed to actually enjoy the um, the salacious stuff, uh, the, the the stuff about King's romantic affairs. Um, LBJ really seemed to be um, have a purient interest in that. And then, um, of course, when King started speaking out against the Vietnam War, um, LBJ took that very personally, and really um, the the great relationship that they once had. LBJ and MLK really unraveled at that point. Even Robert Kennedy was in on some of the wiretaps. Is that is that true? Well, it was Robert Kennedy who authorized the wiretaps in the first place. And um, you know, they, initially they were convinced to do this because they were um, told that King was hanging out and was associating with communists and former communists. But even when it became clear that King was not under the influence in any serious way by communists, um, they allowed those wiretaps to continue. And um, it's one of the great blemishes on the mark of Robert F. Kennedy. Interesting. Uh, so I actually interviewed James Earl Ray from uh, in his jail cell, and uh, I read a lot about the assassination and have been to the Civil Rights Museum and, and the place across the street that has some of the information about that assassination. I'm sure you've been there many times. Do you have a theory about, was James Earl Ray acting alone? Uh, was he the shooter? Uh, was the government behind any of this? Well, if the government was behind it, um, they've done a great job of disguising it. And I guess some people would say that's their specialty. Um, But no one in, you know, 50, 60 years of research has come up with any kind of connection to prove it. And what I will say, without a doubt, is that the FBI knowingly created the conditions in which a lone gunman might be inclined, might be influenced to take out Dr. King. And in fact, months before King's assassination, they produced a memo called, um, I call it the Messiah Memo, where they circulated to every bureau, every um, chapter of the FBI, every office, saying that King is the greatest risk to become a messiah for the black people in America. Malcolm X has been taken care of. Stokely Carmichael's too much of a fringe guy. Um, King is the one we most need to be concerned about, and we must do everything in our power to disrupt and destroy his operations. So um, with that kind of message going out to every FBI office in the country, it is not shocking to me that somebody might um, get the idea to assassinate him. And and that law enforcement was maybe not uh, standing at attention at, at when he was giving his speeches in these various cities. No question about that. Imagine if that memo from the FBI had said, you know, the, the last thing we want in this country is more racial disruption, more tension, more rioting. Let's make sure King is kept safe. Imagine if that had been the memo that went out. Right, right. 
All right, let's. I feel like Barbara Walters when I ask this question, but if you had, if you had uh, Dr. Martin Luther King sitting across from you, you had one question that you could ask him. I mean, I imagine that after all these years of of studying and just immersing yourself in in all things King, uh, you feel like you know the guy. You've listened to his voice. You've read his stuff. You talked to his family. You've talked to his friends. You've read everything there is. What what would be the question you want to ask him? You know, I, I feel really blessed that I got to interview dozens of people who knew Martin Luther King Jr. It's, it's worth reminding ourselves that he would only be 94 years old right now and that he could, his older sister is still alive. So I, oh, I traveled wow. the country for six years meeting people who knew him, and it's a great honor. And I, I really tried to create a book where you felt like you could get to know him. But I still would love to sit across from him and ask him over over a meal because he was a great eater and he was a great storyteller and he had a great sense of humor. I think I would love to ask him, um, I know that you felt called by God to do this, but that's not enough to explain how you had the courage after being stabbed, after being shot at, after having your home bombed, knowing that you and your children were at risk. How did you get up every morning and continue to find the courage to to challenge um, what seemed like an insurmountable problem. How did you do it? I would love to hear his answer because I, I, I don't think it's enough. Just I think, you know, I'd like to hear a, 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 a human explanation, you know, not just the preacher's explanation. One final question, you know, if, if we were able to bring him up from, from the grave and ask him and have him take a quick look at what's going on in our society today, um, would he be surprised? What would, what would be his comments on what's going on today? Well, I would think, first of all, he would, he would say that he, he's, he, he would, I don't know if he would say, I told you so, but he would be entitled to say, I told you so, because so many things he warned us about, the growing income inequality, the um, growing incarceration rates of people of color, all these things he talked about in the 1960s have come true. And he warned us that, you know, if we, if we didn't learn to think of each other as brothers, if we didn't learn to think of ourselves as one people, not divided by a nation, not divided by race, that we were going to continue to, to beat each other up unnecessarily. So um, all I know is that he would not have lost hope because um, he never lost hope in his lifetime. And, and, and if anybody had, had, you know, was entitled to get sour and to, and to lose confidence, to lose faith, it was him, the way, the way he was treated. But he, he never lost that, that ultimate sense of hope. Jonathan Ike, thank you so much for joining us. It's a, well, quite an accomplishment. Uh, really, do do read this book. It's called King, A Life. And can you tell us where you're going to appear tomorrow, Jonathan, talking about your book? Yeah, tomorrow night um, at uh, 6.30, opening like a little reception with sandwiches and stuff um, at Bright Star Baptist Church on the south side. And then um, the conversation with Pastor Chris Harris begins at 7 p.m. That sounds great. Well, well, good luck, and good luck with your book. And do come see us again when you write that great next epic biography. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep working on it. Thanks, Karen. All right, Jonathan, you take care.